There's a resident of Buckeye and Woodland Hills that's been here longer than anyone else. It's been here from the time the neighborhood was mostly open fields and trees, and then through all the changes, the ups and downs, families coming and going, the joys and the heartaches. And through it all, this resident has stood silent, barely known, mysterious, except for every morning when... bells every morning from from the church from the from the abbey in the back where the where the monks live and this has always been sort of like this place that's been a little bit shrouded in mystery for me and i just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about it a benedictine monastery right in the middle of the city You can hear these different bird calls, the robins and the, the morning doves, and, and then you hear these bells. On this episode of Watershed, the bells of St. Andrews. Or what's with those monks at the top of the hill? St. Andrew Abbey sits at the corner of Martin Luther King Boulevard and Buckeye Road, at the top of a hill with clear views of downtown and even Lake Erie on clear days. When you pass by, you know there's something there, but you're not exactly sure what. There's these dense trees and a low concrete wall that line the sidewalks. There's an asphalt driveway that leads back toward a metal gate. Then you look a little closer, and above the trees, you see a steeple. A school bus or two parked in the parking lot. Maybe a few high school boys on their way to soccer or football practice. It's a whole city within a city. Not exactly hiding, but not exactly showing itself either. And ever since Dawn Arrington moved into this neighborhood 13 years ago, she's wondered about the place. It was a Catholic monastery in high school. She knew that much, but what else? Who lived there? Where did they come from? What did they do all day? And then one day, in a totally roundabout way, she got an invitation. My cousin tagged me in a post on Facebook with like a newspaper article that lists like all of the local fish fries. And I'm scrolling through and it said, Benedictine, wait a minute, what? I had no idea that they even did a fish fry. So it's kind of weird and sad at the same time that something so close doesn't have that connection anymore with like the people that are right here. I just assumed that like, you know, they didn't have it or maybe they just assumed that people knew that it was going on. I don't know, but if the invitation is there and it's open and it's, you know, macaroni and cheese on a Friday night, I'm gonna do it. So that's what I did. Like, let's go. <laughs> Um, let's see, so I'm going to get one for dinner. Um, let's see, two of them with big potatoes, one with uh, fries. And um, no other choices. Um, onions on the produce. Please. Anything else? When Don and I meet in the Benedictine High School cafeteria in March, 
the Lenten fish fry season is in full swing. A few families have gathered, mostly parents of the kids who go to school here. We have fish in here now. What kind of fish do you have in there? This is cod, breaded cod. Hmm? Now how do you tell when it's done? How do you know when it's When it floats. So you just, it's floating, so this is perfectly brown. This is good. That's very good. So that's ready to go to the line. My name is Mark Francioli. Well, nice last Italian name here. And I teach English. And uh, are you a monk too? No, no, I'm not. No, you can tell. If, why was that so funny? I don't know why. That, no, because he's been called the father before. Though. Been called many things. Uh, but this uh, tie gives it away. Those of us wearing ties are just regularly faculty, so we're just hired and they pay us something or another. Mr. Francioli has been teaching English at Benedictine High School for 39 years. He also graduated from here in the early 1970s and grew up in the neighborhood. He still lives here today, off Larchmere Boulevard near Shaker Square. This particular area was Hungarian, right where we're at. I think they said it was the largest concentration of Hungarians outside of Budapest. Uh, and then a little west with the Slovak area, to the north were the Italian, Italian area on Woodland, and then uh, Irish, German, Slovak, all mixed together. So it was a highly ethnic area. It was the Slovakians who started this abbey back in the 20s. But within 50 years, that population was mostly gone, along with the Hungarians, the Italians, the Irish. They all left for the suburbs scared away by some combination of crime, fear-mongering realtors, and racial tension. But the monks, they stayed. The oldest order in the Catholic Church. And they had to take a vow of stability, which means they must stay there. So they don't have to ever worry about them leaving. But we've been here a very long time. And, um, the, you know, the monks have a, uh, have a rule that they're not allowed to, anyone who comes to their door, it's Christ coming to their door, that they're not allowed to refuse anyone. So a couple weeks later, that's exactly what Don and I did. We showed up at the door. Well, kind of. We did make an appointment. Hi. Hello. This is Justin. Yes. Justin and Don. Hello, Hi, Father Hi. Gerard. How are you? Hello. Thank you. Father Gerard Gonda is president of Benedictine High School. He also teaches English and theology here, and he's a monk who lives at St. Andrew's Abbey. Okay, yeah, all of us here that are dressed in black, we're all monks, and some of us are monks and priests. He's in his early 60s, neatly parted white hair, black coat and pants with a white collar. We sit down with him in his office. The walls are full of pictures from weddings he's officiated. There's a pro-life sign on the floor and this piece of paper on the back of his door that says, I'm at a funeral, ready for the next time he has to go lead someone's final rites. Then Don cuts to the chase. What's up with those bells? When we, we got those bells in 84, 85, we never had bells. So when we had those bells up there, there was a big debate, should we ring the morning one or not? So they said, well, yeah, we have to. So we rang the morning one, and we got all these complaints. People were calling in, you know, what are you ringing that bell so early in the morning for? 
So he said, well, you know, that's part of our life. So then when the bills break, we get phone calls again. I was late for work because I'm, <laughs> I usually brush my teeth at 6.10 and that bell didn't go off. <laughs> yeah. And around then, the conversation shifts from morning routines to life stories. Don and Father Gerard have been neighbors for years, but they've never gotten to know each other. So she's curious about how he became a monk in the first place. It all started, he told us, in math class. So I was daydreaming and I was picturing a chain that like reaches back into history. And each link of the chain is like another generation of men that became Benedictine monks. And that's why it's been around for 1,500 years. They die, new people come, they join, the chain gets longer. And I f was imagining in my head the last link of the chain was open, waiting for another link. And I said, I think I might be the next link. But the moment that sealed the deal was when he was in college at St. John's University in Minnesota. This was in the early 70s, and the Vietnam War was dragging into its second decade. It was an interesting situation. These, are things, these things work because I was in the draft for the Vietnam War, and I got number 71, which was not a good number. He watched as more and more of his friends in the dorms got called up, the ones with even lower numbers than him. So I got scared, and, and I started going to the church up there and praying, and I said, and this was the 1970s, you know, people were rebelling against anything with structure, and, and, I, and priests in the Catholic Church were leaving and getting married and all this other stuff, and I was praying, Lord, here, I want to do this, and nobody else seems to want to do this, and why are you pulling this dirty trick on me with this draft number, you know? He thought about coming back to Cleveland and St. Andrews, Becoming a monk was one of the few remaining ways you could still avoid going to war. But then I said to myself, if I do that, people will always think I did, I entered the monastery to stay out of Vietnam. And then I might think that <laughs> down the line, if I have some problems, I might think I really wasn't meant for this. I just did this to stay out of Vietnam. So I didn't invoke any of the, uh, of the uh, deferment things. And one day I went to the Minneapolis Tribune to pick it up and the headlines were, Nixon ends the draft. And the first sentence says, the last number called up is 70. Whoa. So I says, I think there's a little message in this. And I went right to the church up there, and I says, all right, I'm sorry I argued with you. <laughs> <laughs> and after the sophomore year, I entered. So He finished up his degree in Cleveland at John Carroll University while he lived at the monastery. That was in 1973. And the neighborhood around Benedictine and St. Andrews was changing really fast. Right after I joined the monastery, the neighborhood underwent a lot of change. And the ethnic communities here took off. So my background was Slovak. And this neighborhood was Hungarian and Slovak. And they had Hungarian bakeries and Slovak bakeries and this and that. And, and all these people took off for the suburbs. And African-American people moved in. As a different culture here. His own parents moved too, to suburban Maple Heights. Well, I think part of it was that there was, there was a, a system where real estates would scare people that the, the property values are falling now because they were, I mean, we, had, we never had a murder in this neighborhood when I grew up. And then, then there was a, a, a service station on the corner of, 
of East Boulevard here. This used to be called East Boulevard and Buckeye, where somebody robbed the service station and they shot the owner and he was dead. And it sent panic waves just through the neighborhood because we never had that, any kind of crime like that. And then these people know how to exploit the panic fin uh, financially. They say, oh, you know, you had a, the house you bought that for 35000 you know, it's worth about 20000 now. What? Well, you better sell it while you can. That was the, the, the thing that scared people the most, I think. The monastery was under a lot of pressure to leave, too. People wanted it to move to the suburbs or even way out to Medina County, which back then was barely a twinkle in suburban developers' eyes. So we studied for a year, and in 1979, we made a decision as a community that our vow of stability wants us to stay here. So some of our alumni didn't like it, and they stopped giving us money and stuff. But other people congratulated us. And I have to say that for all these years, even though the area has had an increase in crime over the years and all, we really have been protected. We really have not had serious crime. And I think it's God's way of kind of saying, thank you for staying there, you know, so. One day I was, I was at the doctor's office and I saw uh, a priest or a monk uh, at the at the counter, at, at the doctor's counter, and he was um, giving his address. And I was like, oh, we're neighbors. Like, you live at Benedictine. And, and it was like, but I had to travel all the way out to University Heights over by John Carroll to meet, to meet someone. So are there ways that the community, just me, you know, without going to a fish fry, how do I get to know the, the community that's at Benedictine? Well, over the years, we have opened our doors to a lot of neighborhood groups. Father Gerard talks about hosting meetings for neighborhood groups, winter socials for senior citizens, food donation programs. But he says he's got to admit there's just a tension that comes with being an urban monastery. Of the 30-some Benedictine monasteries in this country, there's three that are in a city. Most of them are out in the country. And when you think about monasteries, it's like getting away from the noise and everything. And that tranquility is a selling point, or a renting point, really, because you can book a room here. They have five available for private retreats. And if peace and spirituality aren't enough to get you to stay, well, maybe the decor will. When we built the new addition, new addition in 1984, we found out that the founder of the Red Roof Inns graduated from our high school. And we didn't even know that. So he flew up here from Columbus in a helicopter, and he gave us, I think, a half a million dollars. And we asked him for furnishing for five guest rooms, and he gave it. So our guest rooms look like Red Roof Inns in 1985. Nice. That's wonderful. But the rest of the monastery looks pretty much like a monastery. Hushed hallways, a cloisters with wind chimes, this big library full of books. We are looking at the Slovak Institute. If that trunk of cool old stuff you found in your grandma's attic as a kid could be expanded into a whole room, that's pretty much how this place looks. Old frilly dancing outfits and glass cases, big old hats, maps on the walls, ceramic chickens and dogs, shelves and shelves of books. In 1952, 
Our monastery was concerned that communism had taken over Slovakia. So a group of Slovak uh, people who escaped from the, the, from the communist Slovakia approached us and together with our leadership here, we opened up one of only two Slovak libraries in the United States. So it's like a library and museum, it's got a lot of artifacts. Do you allow like general public to come in? Yeah, you have to like make a uh, appointment because they're not always here, but they know a group is coming, you know. And then as we're leaving, there's one more surprise. Some people find it. Usually relics in Catholic churches are a little chip and it's put into a nice golden case yeah. and it doesn't look so gruesome. But these were gotten in Europe some in the 50s and they're a little more dramatic, so. Are these bones? Bones, real bones. So these are bones from saints. So relics are either objects like clothing that somebody wore or they say a first-class relic is actually a bone of the saint. Am I allowed to take a picture of it? Sure. Okay. A case full of them, embedded in red velvet, right in the lobby. People get freaked out, you said? Well, if they find out that they're bones and they look at it. We say goodbye to Father Gerard, thank him for his time. The shroud of mystery has been lifted, thank you. Like, I am full right now. I asked Dawn for some closing thoughts. It was beautiful. It was fun to learn what was hiding behind the walls, but not necessarily actually hiding. I think the, the thing that stood out most to me was this almost um, unsolicited admission that the community that's within Benedictine and the community that they serve or that they're, that they're located within, we both have work to do to sort of bridge the gap and to learn more about each other. Part of it starts with, you know, baby steps, right? Going to a fish fry. I, I, I think that is one of the simplest ways that um, that's how we got in there. But, you know, maybe they do something outside where, you know, the, the monks, you know, come outside and just, you know, set up tables and invite people to, you know, walk around. I would love to be a part of something like that. Like, come and learn a little bit more about us or, you know, put out an announcement that they do do a 710 service, you know, mass on, on Sundays. Yes, we know it's early, but you're welcome to come. I asked about, like, well, what's the neighborhood's responsibility? And I feel like part of what you're saying is, and please rephrase this if you'd like to, but be curious and then don't be afraid to be curious. Like, right. Be curious. Don't be afraid to be curious. But also when the invitation is put out there. Right now the invitation is not widely known. So 
where the work on on the the schools and the monastery side is is to actually make the invitation don't be afraid to make the invitation but then on our side is is when that invitation is made don't question it just try it And as we step outside to leave, as if on cue, for Watershed, I'm Justin Glanville. Watershed is produced by Sidewalk, telling the story of people and place and it's made possible by a grant from the St. Luke's Foundation. Sound design and recording is by Angie Hayes. Our editor is William Bostwick, and our story consultant is Don Arrington. Our theme music is by DJ Doc Carroll and the kids at Refresh Collective, with additional music by Montplaisir. Check out photos and written versions of our stories online at OurSidewalk.com. That's Our, O-U-R, Sidewalk.com. And you can stay up to date on new stories by following Sidewalk on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, and a request for you. Please write us a review on iTunes. It helps spread the word about the show. Until next time.